You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more, including all of the back episodes, at youcan'tbeneutral.com. In addition to the back episodes, you'll find a link there to send me a message and also some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a story written by Tom Suarez, published at MondoWeiss.net. The Western mass media's coverage of the so-called conflict in Israel-Palestine is so flawed as to turn upside down the public's understanding of what is happening. Following are five specific points that are particularly relevant to the current violence. East Jerusalem is not Israel. News analyses of Israeli actions at Shejara and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are inevitably premised as though they are taking place in Israel and thus implicitly subject to Israeli law. No. Israel seized East Jerusalem by force in 1967 and has defied UN demands to leave ever since. Indeed, the UN Security Council, alarmed by Israeli intransigence, made explicit that no amount of Israeli facts on the ground can be used by Tel Aviv to claim a fait accompli in its theft of the land. Israel has no right to be in East Jerusalem in the first place. Number two, citizenship in East Jerusalem is by ethnicity. Jews, yes. Non-Jews, no. Israel, of course, claims to have annexed East Jerusalem. Yet, under Israeli apartheid law, only Jewish settlers, not non-Jewish natives, such as those of Shejara, are citizens. Israel categorizes non-Jewish natives of East Jerusalem as transient residents allowing it to ethnically cleanse them at will. They can apply for citizenship, rarely granted, but it is barely even a Faustian deal. They forfeit any national claim in exchange for a, quote, citizenship that, as non-Jews, still does not prevent their ethnic cleansing. Number three, Jews can reclaim property allegedly owned pre-1948 only Jews. Israel claims that land in Shejara had belonged to Jews before 1948 and that they therefore have the right to repossess it. But under Israeli law, only Jews have this right. The non-Jews whose homes Israeli settlers commandeer are denied the same right. Thus, even if non-Jewish natives of East Jerusalem had applied for and been granted Israeli citizenship, Jewish settlers would still commandeer their homes, while they, as non-Jews, would have no parallel right to reclaim their own rightful homes stolen by Israel 
1948 or later. Number four, the Israeli siege of Gaza began in 1948, not after the election of Hamas in 2006. The news invariably invokes Hamas and rockets to explain the Israeli siege and massacres. No. Although Israel heightened its blockade after the rise of Hamas, the siege began in 1948 and has continued unabated since. Many of the people Israel ethnically cleansed in 1948 ended up in Gaza, facing starvation, cold, and disease in the suddenly overpopulated land. Since they are not Jewish, those who tried to go home were often shot dead on sight, and nothing has changed since. People in Gaza are now shot dead for a merely symbolic attempt to approach the perimeter, quote, fence, enclosing the ghetto. But the media falsely linked the siege to the election of Hamas, providing Israeli a pseudo-explanation. To be sure, one may argue that the rockets are stupid, as they are precisely what Israel wants and provokes. But if the ethnicities were reversed, if Arab militants had ethnically cleansed Jews and kept them semi-starved in a sealed ghetto, which is used as a sadistic weapons-testing toy with no means of self-defense, instead of blaming the victims, our militaries would have liberated them 73 years ago. Number five. The Palestinian Authority is not an autonomous Palestinian government. The media correctly criticized the Palestinian Authority for its impotence and corruption, but falsely suggest that it is the freely elected representative of the Palestinians. The PA was put in place by Israeli military force against the results of the 2006 election, and it has no power whatsoever except as allowed by Israel. It serves Israel by outsourcing the day-to-day -day affairs and the repression of the Palestinians. And Israel needs the facade of a Palestinian government to explain why non-Jews in the West Bank cannot vote in Israeli elections. Nor did the Palestinians even have any true say in the candidates for the 2006 election. Israel imprisoned or assassinated promising leaders, not to its liking, and then began a war to keep the democratically elected winner, Hamas, from taking office in the West Bank. And there are footnoted sources or extra information for each of these points, and the one for this latest point, point five, is pretty interesting. The common wisdom has it that Hamas won the 2006 election for three reasons. It had been active helping local communities. It was at the time seen as less corrupt than Fatah, and because it was seen, unlike Fatah, as an actual opposition to Israel. It is often forgotten that Hamas won the election for all of Palestine, not just Gaza, but Israel, with U.S. backing, used military force to abrogate the election results, leaving Hamas confined to the Gaza Strip, and Fatah, Israel's choice, in the West Bank. Next is a piece published at thenation.com, written by Omar Barghouti. All we need is some more courage from the world. Yesterday, without prior warning, a close relative of mine, 
age 84, experienced an eruption of long-suppressed memories of his traumatic childhood during the 1948 Nakba, and was overcome by mixed feelings of ominous fear and liberating hope. While unbearable, the images of Israel's latest massacre in the besieged Gaza Strip, euphemistically coded as, quote, guardian of the walls, did not bring him to this emotional tipping point, nor the images of the brutal repression of worshippers in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, or the relentless forcible displacement in Shejara and around the occupied East Jerusalem. What did was the view from his little balcony in Akka of young Palestinians struggling to fend off a mob of far-right Jewish Israelis roaming the streets, chanting, Death to Arabs! and hunting for Palestinians to lynch. This scene was repeated against indigenous Palestinian communities in Lida, Jaffa, Ramle, Haifa, Batyam, and elsewhere, triggering calls for international protection. As my relative watched memories of his beloved Haifa in 1948 gushed through his mind, Zionist militias aided by British soldiers literally chasing Palestinians at gunpoint to the sea. The makeshift raft his family had to board instructed by the British to sail to Lebanon for safety. His father's wise decision to disembark in Accra instead. Yet even as those memories filled his mind, memories of existential fear and the trauma of vulnerability, they shared space with a new and inexplicable hope. Quote, my generation lost Palestine, he said. He then continued with a defiant inflection and a smile. But this new generation is courageous, resilient, determined to resist and to overcome 73 years of our ongoing Nakba. All they, I mean all we need, is some, just some, more courage from the world. It is not naivete or fatalism that gives hope to my elder relative or to Palestinians of all generations dispersed across the world. It is the fact that the dual walls that Israel has so systematically built over decades, the walls it is truly trying to guard, are showing some serious cracks, if not beginning to collapse. The first of these walls is Ze'ev Jabotinsky's Iron Wall of Despair, that has colonized Palestinian minds. The second, just as inhibiting and debilitating, is the wall of intimidation that inhibits many people of influence worldwide from speaking out for Palestinian rights. In 1923, Jabotinsky, a prominent Zionist leader, theorized the necessity of the first wall. Quote, Every native population in the world resists colonists as long as it has the slightest hope of being able to rid itself of the danger of being colonized. Zionist colonization must either stop or else proceed regardless of the native population. He recommended an iron wall to overpower the native Arab-Palestinian population, partly by colonizing our minds with hopelessness and the internalization of of inferiority, as Franz Fanon puts it. Decades later, and backed by the United States and the European Union, Israel has built concrete walls and employed its Tahiyya doctrine, a doctrine of extreme 
disproportionate violence targeting Palestinian and Lebanese civilians and civilian infrastructure, precisely to sear our collective consciousness the futility of resisting its colonial hegemony. As for the other wall, Israel and its lobby groups have invested massive resources in building it in the minds of opinion shapers globally, especially in the West, making the price of dissent of defending Palestinian rights ruthlessly painful to one's career, reputation, and even mental health. Analyzing this wall, Edward Said explained how avoidance and fear of speaking out about one of the greatest injustices in modern history has hobbled, blinkered, muzzled many who know the truth and are in a position to serve it. Cracks in both walls have started to widen under pressure from fearless Palestinian popular resistance across historic Palestine and the corresponding courage that Hollywood celebrities, prominent musicians, star athletes, and millions of activists worldwide are displaying. The bravery of Palestinian families in Shejara defending their homes against forcible displacement is among the factors inspiring tens of thousands of other Palestinians who have participated in civil disobedience. The same Palestinian bravery was visible in the thousands who defended the occupied Old City of Jerusalem against a pogrom by Israeli Jewish fascists. A pogrom, moreover, encouraged by government officials expressing, quote, racist, even genocidal animus towards Palestinians, as a progressive Jewish American group, if not now, described it. This bravery has inspired an outpouring of support across new and vital parts of the U.S. landscape. Expressing a growing sentiment in the U.S. Congress and connecting military funding to Israel with social and justice struggles at home. Representative Cory Bush said, quote, The fight for black lives and the fight for Palestinian liberation are interconnected. We oppose our money going to fund militarized policing, occupation, and systems of violent oppression and trauma. We are anti-apartheid. Period. Susan Sarandon tweeted, quote, What's happening in Palestine is settler colonialism, military occupation, land theft, and ethnic cleansing. Halsey wrote, quote, It is not too complicated to understand that brown children are being murdered and people are being displaced under the occupation of one of the most powerful armies in the world. Viola Davis, Mark Ruffalo, Natalie Portman, and many others express solidarity with Palestinians. These cracks, which shatter much of the silence that Palestinians have often heard, reflect the cumulative creative and strategic efforts exerted over the years by boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS, and other Palestinian solidarity campaigners around the world, including those by progressive Jewish groups. A 2018 U.S. poll, for instance, shows that 40% of Americans, 56% of Democrats, support imposing sanctions or more serious measures on Israel to stop its occupation. A particularly important source of Palestinian hope is the growing impact of the Palestinian-led nonviolent BDS movement, which aims at ending Israel's regime of military occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid 
in defending the right of Palestinian refugees to return home. Sovereign funds in Norway, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and elsewhere have divested from Israel or international companies and banks that are implicated in Israel's occupation. Mainstream churches in South Africa have endorsed BDS, while major churches in the United States, including the Presbyterian Church and the United Methodist Church, have divested from complicit U.S. companies and or Israeli banks. The city of Dublin in 2018 became the first European capital to adopt BDS, while tens of other cities and hundreds of other cultural institutions and public spaces across Europe have declared themselves Israeli apartheid free zones. BDS has won the endorsement of major international trade union federations in South Africa, Latin America, India, Europe, Canada, and the United States. Thousands of artists, academics, and hundreds of student governments, LGBTQI groups, and social justice movements across the world have also endorsed BDS accountability measures. The main contribution to the BDS movement to Palestinian liberation, however, is its role in decolonizing Palestinian minds from deeply seated powerlessness and in leading a radical praxis of globalized intersectional resistance, transformation, and emancipation. Today, more than ever, Palestinians are telling the world that true solidarity with our struggle for freedom, justice, and equality spells BDS. We are shattering our wall of fear every day, and we need not just, quote, some more courage, as my relative from Accra said, but an eruption of meaningful solidarity that ends all complicity in Israel's oppression. One of the factors in the United States, in many, many different states in the United States, um, in slowing down the movement for BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, are state and local laws that prohibit individuals from supporting BDS. This next piece is published at thehill.com and is about a recent court action related to one of those many laws. This is written by Harper Neidig. A federal judge said that a Georgia law banning the state from doing business with anyone promoting a boycott of Israel violates the First Amendment. In a ruling issued Friday, District Court Judge Mark Cohen rejected state officials' efforts to dismiss a lawsuit from Abby Martin, a progressive journalist and documentary filmmaker, challenging the law. Cohen said in a 29-page decision that the law, quote, prohibits inherently expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment, burdens Martin's right to free speech, and is not narrowly tailored to further a substantial state interest. Quote, Even assuming that Georgia's interest in furthering foreign policy goals regarding relations with Israel is a substantial state interest, defendants fail to explain how Martin's advocacy of a boycott of Israel has any bearing on Georgia's ability to advance foreign policy goals with Israel. Cohen, who was appointed to the bench by former President Obama, wrote in the decision. 
The lawsuit is still in its early stages, and Cohen has not yet ruled whether the state law should be struck down. The Georgia Attorney General Office declined to comment. Martin applauded the decision in a statement on Monday, saying she was, quote, thrilled by the judge's findings. Quote, My First Amendment rights were restricted on behalf of a foreign government, which flies in the face of the principles of freedom and democracy, she said. The government of Israel has pushed state legislatures to enact these laws only because they know that sympathy and support for the population they brutalize, occupy, ethnically cleanse, and subject to apartheid is finally growing in popular consciousness. They want to hold back the tide of justice by preemptively restricting the right of American citizens to peacefully take a stand against their crimes. Georgia's Attorney General's office, which is defending against the lawsuit, did not immediately respond when asked for comment. Martin filed the lawsuit last year after university officials terminated an agreement for her to speak at a 2019 event hosted by Georgia Southern University. Under the state law, the contract for her speaking arrangement would have forbid her from engaging in or promoting the boycott movement against Israel. According to the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, which represented Martin in the lawsuit, Georgia is one of 26 states that have enacted laws seeking to hinder the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which advocates for economic pressure on Israel in protest of their occupation of Palestinian land and alleged human rights abuses against Arabs under that occupation. CARE has challenged similar state laws and won favorable court decisions in Arizona, Kansas, and Texas in recent years. The decision on Friday came on the heels of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that ended a brief lopsided battle between the two sides. Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza killed more than 230 people in recent weeks, many of whom were civilians, according to Gaza's health officials, while rocket attacks from the Palestinian group Hamas killed 12 Israelis. Israel's strikes against the densely populated Gaza territory and its crackdown on Palestinian protests in Jerusalem in recent weeks, that's East Jerusalem, have stoked outrage among the growing number of Israel critics within the U.S. who are also fighting what they see as laws stifling dissent against their own country's foreign policy towards the Israeli government. Quote, Israel's latest violent onslaught against Palestinians underscores the importance of advocacy for Palestinian human rights, Gader Abbas, a senior attorney with CARE, said in a statement. By standing up against this illegal anti-BDS law, Abby Martin ensures that all Americans have the freedom to stand up for Palestine. Next up, a piece written by Murtaza Hussein, published at TheIntercept.com. When Israeli troops stormed the Aqsa Mosque compound last week during Ramadan prayers, much of the world vicariously experienced the raid as it took place. Raw video footage of soldiers storming through screaming crowds with stun grenades exploding as congregants ran for safety was transmitted globally at the speed of information. The provocative attack on a site considered holy to billions of people triggered an almost immediate reaction, not just among international media and online, but at the diplomatic level as well. Within a day of the incident, 
U.S. lawmakers, European states, and even Arab governments that have good relations with Israel were publicly condemning the assault and demanding de-escalation. These actors were themselves reacting to the pressure coming or expected from their own populations, much of whom had live-streamed the events or seen clips of the social media videos. Rather than reading relatively controlled textual accounts in the morning paper the next day, ordinary people the world over witnessed the violent scenes blow by blow. Images distributed on social media of several attempts by Israel to evict Palestinians from their homes in the historic Shejara neighborhood of East Jerusalem had kicked off the tensions earlier in the week. On Monday, videos of Israeli throngs at holy sites cheering the chaos while singing far-right anthems flew around the internet. Now, footage of violence in mixed Arab-Jewish cities across Israel is spreading, along with the aftermaths of Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. The emotional impact of literally viewing these scenes as they happen cannot be underestimated. Quote, Due to technology... Ordinary Palestinians now have the ability to broadcast their stories without the filter of a media that is highly biased against them, said Yusuf Monayer, non-resident senior fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C., a nonpartisan research institute. We are seeing this on many different platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, where Palestinians of the younger generation are sharing their voices and experiences with as many people as possible. The internet has so deeply enveloped all aspects of our culture that it's hard to recall that we are still in the early phases of a digital revolution. Estimates hold that by mid-decade, around 75% of people on Earth will have a smartphone. Being able to capture high-resolution videos and instantaneously send them out to the world is placing a level of broadcasting power once monopolized by outlets like CNN in the pockets of almost everyone. The political impact of this change has already helped reshape politics across the world and has become a critical variable during armed conflicts. The pure strength of weaponry was for so long alone as a prime determinant in conflicts, but now extraordinarily powerful states also have to worry about teenagers with 200-gram microcomputers, as Israel is seeing today. Quote, I think you have been seeing the importance of this for a number of years now, said Munayer. The state of Israel, and states in general, now have a much harder time using traditional tools to control the narrative of events. A sad reflection of the sheer length of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that it has continued over several information revolutions. When early waves of Jewish settlers began arriving in mandatory Palestine in the late 19th century, people were still understanding the world through print media and telegrams, later giving way to newsreels. That frame of reference has since transformed several times over. Throughout the 20th century, as the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians escalated, scenes of shootings, bombings, and forced displacement were transmitted to the world first by newspapers, then radio stations, network television channels, and now, in perhaps the biggest revolution yet, instantaneously by participants themselves through unedited cell phone videos. In the Mideast conflict, Israel's decades-long occupation 
has been punctuated by two mass Palestinian uprisings known as intifadas. The current tensions over Shejara and Al-Aqsa Mosque are raising the specter of a third, in which, for Palestinians, the implications of the new information environment cannot be overstated. The next major phase of the conflict may take place in the streets of Jerusalem and the Israeli-occupied Gaza Strip. But the narrative war between Israelis, Palestinians, and their respective global diasporas will be fought just as much in cyberspace. For the Israelis, this narrative war is hugely important, not least because the role of the U.S. its most important political and military supporter. The U.S., through military aid, pays for about a fifth of the Israeli defense budget and acts as a bulwark against international action in the United Nations and other fora aimed at Israel. During the first and second intifadas, the Israeli-Palestine conflict was depicted to a global audience largely from an Israeli perspective. Should a third uprising break out, Raw footage like that broadcast during the raids on Al-Aqsa Mosque are likely to trigger immediate reactions from the global public that are favorable to the Palestinians, as well as from American lawmakers who have grown bolder in their condemnation of Israeli actions. The Mideast conflict had lately subsided as an international issue, but the wave of Israeli actions captured on social media stoked outrage and pushed it back into the headlines. Quote, Many people had been thinking recently that the Israeli-Palestine issue was falling off the agenda, Munayer said, but now we are seeing the scale of mobilization throughout the land and globally. The ability of camera phones and social media to push an issue to the fore has been witnessed beyond Israel-Palestine. Social media has helped the opposition movements in other parts of the world build support and promote their causes, including Black Lives Matter, Syrian revolutionaries, democracy activists in places like Myanmar, as well as Hong Kong, and more darkly, Islamic extremists and far-right nationalist groups across the world. States still wield a lot of power in this information war, but attempts to counteract social media with state-driven online messaging tend to be viewed as inorganic, leaving them at a disadvantage in an information environment where authenticity is key. A recent U.S. Army War College report spelled out the magnitude of this transformation, which has accelerated as the Internet has grown more powerful and become as much a visual medium as a textual one. Quote, In the modern era, broadcast television has been tightly controlled from its inception by political and commercial elites who wish to shape public discourse and protect the audience from messages they find harmful or unprofitable, the report stated. The digital revolution exploded this top-down model. Vastly more individuals and groups across the globe now have access to inexpensive cameras, sophisticated visual media tools, and virtually free delivery system on the Internet. As a result, the report's authors continued, quote, The dominance of state and industrial information producers has receded, and a new crop of visual communicators has swept aside the old rules and relationships. As Israel carries out military operations, many of which result in the deaths of Palestinian civilians, including airstrikes on the Gaza Strip that killed at least five children, and this was written very early because the number of children killed alone is over 60 now. 
The visceral impact of the rest of the world seeing the results in real time may make it politically difficult for even its friends to support it in the years ahead. Still, rather than decentralized protocols controlled by no one, social media platforms are themselves profit-making entities vulnerable to political pressure. Just like the old media institutions, during the Sheikh Jared protests, pro-Palestinian users complained of mass takedowns of their online content. We have another story coming up soon about that. Quote, It has helped without a doubt that today ordinary Palestinians are able to share their stories with the rest of the world on social media, said Marwar Fatafta, the Middle East and North African policy manager at Access Now, a digital rights organization. Everyone knows what is happening in Shejara right now, and that is because of social media. But unfortunately, whenever things reach a certain peak, what we see are these mass takedowns of content. Fatafta added, quote, These companies need to provide transparency about their decisions on restricting content, particularly during these extremely critical times. Next up, a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. You can find this at caitlinjohnstone.com. The Israeli narrative is crumbling because of phone cameras and the internet. Quote, 24 people, including nine children, were killed in Gaza overnight, most of them in Israeli strikes, reads a new report from AP. Nine children killed with the help of United States funding to the tune of $3.8 billion a year. Remember, kids, the U.S. loves Muslims and just wants to protect their human rights. The Monday night airstrikes were in response to rocket attacks by Gaza resistance groups, which had reportedly injured six Israelis, and those rocket attacks were in turn a response to a deluge of Israeli police brutality footage in Jerusalem in the preceding days, Electronic Intifada reports. Quote, this came at the end of a day of violence that began in occupied East Jerusalem, where Israeli forces assaulted worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, injuring hundreds. Scenes of brutality in Jerusalem generated outrage and solidarity among Palestinians and around the world. The military wing of the Palestinian resistance organization Hamas issued an ultimative, giving Israel an hour until 6 p.m. local time to withdraw its forces from Al-Aqsa in the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Shejara and free detainees. When the deadline passed, Resistance groups in Gaza fired volleys of rockets towards Jerusalem for the first time since the summer of 2014, prompting celebrations from some Palestinians. The mass media are working furiously to spin this in a way that rivals my satire piece from the other day. The New York Times has been cartoonishly rewriting its own reporting in a desperate attempt to make Israel look like an innocent victim of unprovoked attacks instead of the obvious aggressor against people of pro- people protesting a brutal apartheid regime backed by an entire empire. And an example of that is in this article. Um, there is a Twitter bot that tracks changes and edits to stories in the New York Times. Take a look at this example and tell me there isn't systemic anti-Palestinian bias 
in media. The original piece of the article said, quote, The police entered the compound and fired rubber-tipped bullets. Anger was already building in response to the looming expulsion of several Palestinian families from their homes in the city. That was the original statement in the article. Here is the rewrite. Gaza militants fired rockets towards Jerusalem and the Israeli police fought with Palestinian protesters in an escalation of violence after a week of increasing tensions. The in, Nearly the entire paragraph, entire statement was stricken and replaced. Four words in the original remained. Fired, the, Palestinian, and in. And the entire meaning was the entire original meaning was discarded and replaced to the benefit of defenders of the Israeli atrocities. The New York Post falsely reported that the deaths on Monday were caused by, quote, airstrikes from Hamas militants. When did Hamas get an air force? When sharing an article which falsely implied that those fatalities were inflicted by both sides. DW News framed its headline in a way that suggested the nine children killed had been involved in fighting against Israeli forces, and the word clashes is being thrown around willy-nilly to describe a very one-sided assault. But it isn't working. Social media is teeming with viral footage of police assaulting peaceful worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, of Israelis cheering and chanting, Yimach Shemam, may their names be erased at the site of a fire near the mosque, of Israeli soldiers arresting Palestinian protesters using the signature knee-on-the-neck maneuver made famous by the murder of George Floyd, many of which have millions of views. Mainstream politicians on both sides of the Atlantic are putting out statements explicitly condemning Israel as the aggressor in these attacks, and the White House is facing some actual adversarial journalism for once regarding its refusal to denounce the killing of Palestinian children and its absurd position that Palestinians have no right to defend themselves. This is the most mainstream that criticism of Israeli apartheid oppression has ever been in my lifetime. And as more and more mainstream human rights groups begin acknowledging the reality of that oppression, it's only getting more so. Whenever I say something critical of Israel, I always get readers saying, oh man, you're going to get attacked so bad for this. Dissent on Israel is not tolerated. But quite honestly, that hasn't been my experience at all, and I think it's an outdated perception. In the few years I've been at this commentary gig, I found that I get far more aggressive pushback when I criticize establishment narratives regarding Russia or China or even Syria and Venezuela than I do when I criticize Israel. The pushback is there, of course, but it is not nearly as virulent as what I'm used to. There are a lot of factors contributing to the growing awareness of Israel's brutality, but I think the main reason is very simple. There are only so many viral videos of unconscionable acts that can be dismissed with, quote, actually, this is way more complicated than it looks. It is not more complicated than it looks.
Clearly, it looks bad because it is bad. At a recent video appearance for the International Festival of Whistleblowing, Dissent, and Accountability, Israel-based journalist Jonathan Cook described the changes he's seen as smartphones and internet access made Palestinians less dependent on the work of sympathetic activists and gave them the ability to directly share footage of their own abuse. Cook said the following, quote, Sadly, most corporate journalists paid little attention to the work of these activists. In any case, their role was quickly snuffed out. That was partly because Israel learned that shooting a few of them served as a very effective deterrent, warning others to keep away. But it was also because as technology became cheaper and more accessible, eventually ending up in mobile phones that everyone was expected to have, Palestinians could record their own suffering more immediately and without mediation. Israel's dismissal of the early grainy images of the abuse of Palestinians by soldiers and settlers as Pollywood, Palestinian Hollywood, became ever less plausible, even to its own supporters. Soon, Palestinians were recording their mistreatment in high definition and posting it directly to YouTube. Seeing is believing, and a video is difficult to narrative manage. The dominant narrative is no longer solely in the hands of propaganda outlets like the New York Times, which can spin everything that happens with a pro-Israel slant. It's being spread all over the internet in a medium that is far more objective than print. And on a side note, although it is more objective than print because it is less mediated, that does not mean that there is not a lot of creative editing and uh, out-of-context content put out there to promote one side or the other that does not show the complete picture. And in fact, intentional misrepresentation, particularly by state actors, but also by others. This is so effective because unlike so many other ugly aspects of the U.S. Centralized Power Alliance, Israeli apartheid is not some covert government operation being run by highly trained agents and manipulators. Those responsible for carrying out its day-to-day -day abuses are just ordinary civilians, police, and soldiers who have not been trained on the sinister craft of perception management, who aren't acutely aware that it's bad optics to tell a Palestinian family on camera that if you don't steal their house, then someone else will who don't have bad PR at the forefront of their attention when they're cheering as they shoot Palestinian protesters, who just react to the racist nationalist propaganda they've been ingesting all their lives instead of considering how difficult it will be to narrative manage a video of them cheering and chanting, may their names be erased at the sight of flames. Awareness is spreading of Israel apartheid brutality for the same reason awareness is spreading of U.S. police brutality, the Internet combined with smartphone cameras. Seeing is believing. Seeing brings change. This is why the powerful are working so hard to censor the Internet. If they can't control what our dominant narratives are going to be, they will not be able to rule us. Will they succeed? Jonathan Cook's aforementioned speech concludes with some words of hope and encouragement. Quote, 
the establishment are being forced into a game of whack-a-mole with us. Each time they bully or dismantle a platform we use, another one, like Substack, springs up to replace it. That is because there will always be journalists determined to find a way to peek behind the curtain to tell us what they found there. And there will always be audiences who want to learn what is behind the curtain. Supply and demand are on our side. The constant acts of intimidation and violence by political and media elites to crush media pluralism in the name of, quote, democratic values, will serve only to further expose the hypocrisy and bad faith of the corporate media and its hired hands. We must keep struggling because the struggle itself is a form of victory. And finally, one of a lot of pieces out there discussing the censorship on the social media platforms by the social media platforms of these videos, statements, reports on what is happening in Shejara and in Palestine. This is pieces published at article19.org. Facebook and Twitter, and not only them, but they're the ones specifically called out in this article, are systemically silencing users, protesting and documenting the evictions of Palestinian families from their homes in the neighborhood of Shejara in Jerusalem. We, the organizations listed below, demand Facebook and Twitter immediately stop these takedowns, reinstate affected content and accounts, and provide a clear and public explanation for why the content was removed. In the past days, people have taken to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to document and denounce Israeli police brutality and violent attacks by Jewish settlers against Palestinian activists and residents who are peacefully protesting against the imminent threat of being evicted from their homes. In a rapid escalation, hundreds of posts and accounts documenting these violations were deleted on Instagram and Twitter. The scale of these content takedowns and account suspensions reported by users and documented by digital rights organizations is egregious and pronounced. Facebook and Twitter have not provided any explanation to their users for these actions. Instagram, for instance, has removed hundreds of stories related to Shejara, including archived posts. The platform's arbitrary and non-transparent decisions constitute a serious violation of Palestinians' fundamental rights, including their right to freedom of expression and their right to freedom of association and assembly online, which both Facebook and Twitter have pledged to honor in accordance with the United Nations' guiding principles on business and human rights. The work is being done to escalate these cases with Facebook and Twitter. Timing is critical. Users from Shejara have made it clear that without the world's attention, they would be in even more danger. We demand Facebook and Twitter immediately stop censoring and to reinstate the accounts and content of Palestinian voices. These companies must open an investigation into the takedowns and transparently and publicly share the investigations. The removed content and suspended accounts on both Instagram and Twitter 
are related to the documentation and reporting of what is happening in Shejara, as well as denouncing Israel's policies of ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and persecution. These violations are not limited to Palestinian users, but also affect activists around the world who are using social media to raise awareness about the grave situation in Shejara. This latest spate of content takedowns is part of a wider pattern of consistent censorship of Palestinian and allied voices and systematic efforts to silence them, which civil society organizations have documented for years. Similar past cases related to takedown of Palestinian speech on these platforms have been attributed to requests by Israel's cyber unit, an internet referral unit whose mission is to submit quote, voluntary requests to social media companies for content removal. The content coming from Shejara illustrates the sheer number and severity of human rights violations requiring digital documentation and media awareness. Social media platforms provide a crucial space for communities with no other recourse to make their demands for freedom, justice, and dignity heard. Online spaces should be available for organizations, activists, and human rights defenders to expose and document human rights violations on the ground. This can only work when platforms build transparent and coherent content moderation policies based on international human rights standards and apply them in a consistent, transparent, and equitable way. We, the undersigned organizations, urgently call on Facebook and Twitter to 1. Immediately open an investigation into those cases, as well as transparently and publicly share reasons behind takedown of accounts and posts related to Shejara. 2. Immediately reinstate all accounts and content currently taken offline in breach of international standards on freedom of expression. 3. Provide transparency on the decision-making processes involved in content takedowns related to Palestine. 4. Publicly commit to resist government and court orders in breach of international standards on freedom of expression. 5. Publish detailed data on requests submitted by the Israeli cyber unit, including numbers of complaints received, content removal, account suspensions, and other content restrictions, together with details on the category of content that was removed and or reinstated. 6. Commit to the baseline principles set forth in the Santa Clara Principles on Transparency and Accountability in Content Moderation. And that would be a start. The secrecy of these private owners, private companies that run and manage these vast social media sites um, harms us all. The algorithms they use that skew what you see, that promote, in some cases, garbage content, but that attracts people's attention, keeps people engaged longer on the platforms. One of the most, in, most important reasons and most compelling things that the platform owners want is your attention. They want you to pay attention longer, so they're going to feed you what they know based on their data collection of you will hold your attention attention longer. That just promotes the narratives you are already attracted to. 
it is what skews your understanding of what's really happening in the world. It prevents you from seeing some different voices. It, it limits your exposure to a variety of sources and it harms your worldview and it benefits the, the people in charge. It benefits the people in power. It benefits the companies financially. It benefits the states that are trying to manage the content and manage um, your reaction to the news by managing the news, by managing what you see. And one of the, I keep going back to this, but they want to manage the blame pattern. Who are, who are you going to blame? They want it. They want to use all the tools at their disposal, and the internet is one. The internet is one that that they've had a harder time maintaining control over, which is a good thing. But they are still struggling and working hard to manage that control over what people see, what people hear, and influence how people feel. And the primary reason for that is to keep us divided, to keep our attention on each other, to prevent the mass of us, the 99%, so to speak, to realize that the 1% are causing us harm and to do something about it. If we could stop being convinced that the things that harm and oppress us come from other people that are more most similar to us, but maybe have a different color skin, maybe originate from a different nation than we do, but have so much in common with us and feel the same oppressions and more in many cases, oppressions that we are fed and we are taught to impose upon them. We're, we're fighting with our peers, not by accident, but by design of the people in power. It's how they stay in power. That's going to wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can find out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 on movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Well, of course, then, you didn't have free public education, at least not for our booming people. You didn't have mass media. Oh, you had songs, you had stories, and you had conversation. Uh, see, today, well, let me put it this way. All of us assign blame in our own best interest. Right? Well, if, a, if we assign blame in our own best interest, that means blame is relative. And if blame is relative, then one of the important functions in society becomes who controls the blame pattern. <laughs> Why is it that large bodies of workers, like in my country, assign blame downward to some welfare chiselers down at the bottom, you know, they say trying to get a little bit of something for nothing, and they never assign blame upward to the handful of big-time chiselers at the top that get a whole lot of something for doing nothing at all. Well, that's because the blame pattern is manipulated. Sure, through the public schools. 
You know, we, we give our kids over to that when we put them in public school. We, and then the public schools build in little automatic responses, levers and buttons. When they go into the labor force, you see, then the government reaches out through its media in every home and pushes those buttons and pulls those levers and elicits massive response for or against anything it chooses. Like I say, it was easier to identify who the enemy was. You're booming into the freight yards. You could see the private cars rolled off on the siding. You, you could see, as you were sweating underground, like in Butte, the mansions being built in a ring on the hills around. See, and the mansions working their way higher up the hill, the deeper you dug yourself into the ground. Okay, easy to see. And the solution was a little easier to see, too. You know, uh, dump the bosses off your back. Um, one thing I should mention is this, this, this music is not great poetry. You probably figured that out right away, didn't you? <laughs> well, that's because it was real simple. It had to be simple because people didn't speak a lot of English or had never been to school. Um, but it, it's not like your modern protest music, which tends to be introverted. A lot of it very poetic. Uh, hard to understand, though. Uh, Middle-class music written for middle-class consumption because they got the bread to buy it, okay? Uh, what I'm saying is a lot of difference between how many miles must a white dove sail before it can rest in the sand and dump the bosses off your back. <laughs> <laughs>